All right, we are uh, in Genesis 17 tonight, and I'm going to keep uh, bringing you back to podcasts I listen to. There's an NPR podcast I listened to uh, last week, actually, and it was fascinating because it was about these two really good friends. Their name, was, I think, their name was Ted and Andy, and they both lived in Nashville. They lived a mile, a mile and a half from each other's house. They were both musicians, but they never saw each other. They were, they were just busy with their lives, with their families, with their wives and their jobs. They would never see each other. But every December, because they were both musicians, they'd go on this three-week tour together and have so much fun. They would laugh, you know, joke around, be reminded of how good of friends they were. And then they would kind of say goodbye and go back to their lives, and that would be it. And so finally, like, randomly they ran into each other in the middle of the summer at some party. And Andy said, like, this is ridiculous. Like, we live a mile and a half from each other. We are incredibly good friends, and we never see each other. And so he, he came up with this idea. He said, here's the deal. And he was kind of funny. He said, on Monday, I'm going to leave my house and start walking, and I'm going to text you. And when I, leave, when I text you, you start walking, and we're going to meet in the middle, and we're going to give each other a high five, and then we'll just walk back to our house. And so they did it, and they, they kind of laughed about it and, and thought it was funny, But what started as a joke, they decided they were going to do it every week. And for a year, whether it rained, shined, sleet, or snow, he would get up, he would text Ted, and they would start walking. And it was so fascinating to hear him talk because, right, they they could have just said, look, we know we're good friends, you know I love you, you love me, let's just leave it at that. But they decided that they would have something that they were committed to, that every week would be a tangible expression where they would give each other a high five and know that they loved each other. And they said as the year progressed, like it really strengthened their friendship. It was something they looked forward to every day. And at the end of the year, like, man, they just loved each other. And see, we're going back to the beginning of season one, episode one of this true story, the Bible that we all live in, and see if, see if it doesn't make sense of some of the questions and of our lives. And what we're about to see is this. God doesn't just say, hey, I love you. I care for you. Just believe me. Though that would be enough. He actually gives us something tangible, something physical to hold on to, to experience that you can look at. And you you see, that kind of looks silly. But he gives it to us because he loves us. And he regularly wants to remind you of that that so that your love for him increases and your trust for him increases. Let me me pray for us. Father, this is a very uh, strange passage. Um, anytime uh, that we start uh, thinking about uh, something like circumcision, it makes us go, what in the world? But Lord, I pray that even in Genesis 17, we would see a God who delights to show mercy and we'd be drawn to that. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, the incredibly small print on the back of your announcements. I'm actually only going to read chapter 17. <clears throat> Okay, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. <clears throat> then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
I'll make you exceedingly grateful and fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I'll give, uh, and I'll, and I'll give to you your offspring. Everybody okay? We good? And I'll give to you uh, your offspring after you land of your sojourners all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as far as, as, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you through, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princesses, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with them, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all that is born in his house, and, and bought with his money every male among men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him, Abraham. As God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. All right, what do we do with this? You know, maybe you've gotten comfortable reading some of this. All right, three things. I want you to see the promises that bring laughter. Second of all, the sign that confronts your laughter. And third, your response of laughter. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice went out this weekend, so it's still recovering. First, the promises that bring laughter. Okay, remember the setting. 25 years, if you've been with us, have passed chronologically since Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. So 25 years ago, God shows up basically out of nowhere to Abraham and makes these incredible promises. as Abraham... Through your descendants, I'm going to save the world. And I'm going to give you this land. And Abraham believes and he follows the Lord. Well, after about 15 years, nothing happens. And Abraham and Sarah just like, I don't know. I think they just wonder what happened. And so we saw last week that Abraham sleeps with Hagar, his slave. As Sarah gave him up, like he blows it. He messes up big time. And God still says, I'm going to remain faithful. And now we are 13 years after that incident, okay? So 13 years have passed. For all we know, God has not spoken to Abraham again. 
So think about where Abraham is. I mean, what would you be thinking? It has been 25 years. It's been 13 years after you blew it with Hagar. What would you think? I mean, you've got to be thinking like, I guess this is like, this is nuts. What was I thinking? Or probably even more, that's what I thought. Like I, I didn't come through. God has moved on with his promises to somebody else, somebody, somebody better than me. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden, verse 1, the Lord appears again and says, I am God Almighty. And he gives him these instructions to walk before him and be blameless. We're going to come back to that. And he says, I'm going to multiply you greatly. And he reiterates his promises to Abraham again. It's amazing. He is telling Abraham, look, despite all your failings, despite all the seeming delay on my part, I'm still committed. I still love you. I still have not taken back any of my promises. And he just gives some more detail. And what does he promise? It's nothing new in a sense. He just, he just sheds some light on it. And he says, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant. And at the heart of that is verse 7 where he says, I'm going to be your God and, and your offspring's God. And so the Lord of this universe looks, this is what you got to realize, he looks at old, tired, worn out Abraham who is a failure and says, I'm, look, I have a covenant relationship with you. I have a real relationship with you, Abraham. One based on promises that loves you and is intimate with you and is going to care about you, I have not stopped that. And then verse 15, he says, and your wife Sarah is going to have a son. A promise. That's what the Lord of this universe promises again to Abraham, that he is going to have such a loving, caring relationship with Abraham that that the only thing you can call it is a covenant. Which is the same thing that we call a marriage. Because it's based on promises. And then he's still going to give him a son. What is Abraham's response? This is what's awesome. He laughs. Verse 17, it's not a good laugh. It's actually an unbelieving, cynical laugh. And he just says, okay, you're telling me a child's going to be born to me as a 100-year-old man and to my wife as a 90-year-old woman. That's absurd. Like, that's impossible. And he just laughs. He just laughs that the Lord still wants to be in a relationship with him and that the Lord has promised him a kid. This is ridiculous. Abram, I love this. Abram is a sarcastic cynic. That gives me hope because that's who I am, right? The, it, it, like the promises, the covenant, it just sounds too good to be true. There's just no way. And so what does that show us tonight? Like sitting in dormant. Look, if Abram is the father of our faith, if he's the paradigm for how God deals with his people, here we go. That means a Christian is someone who God has made a covenant with, and it is just ridiculous promises. That God has made promises to you that honestly, they're absurd. Like they sound too good to be true. Like just think about the first promise. The Lord's desire is to be in a covenant relationship with you. To be bound to you. To be united to you and to care for you and love you, and love you with an intimacy that, that can only kind of be shown when you see the way that a bride and a bridegroom look at each other on their wedding night. He says, that's the way I feel about you. A love that is so real that God the Father would send his eternal and only son 
to go to a cross so that he could have you. A Jesus that loves you so much that he'd rather be torn to pieces and take the penalty of your sins so you can be forgiven and made clean. He would rather do that than not have you. That's his promise. And do you know what the sign is that you've actually heard God's promises rightly? It's that you laugh. I'm not saying that Abram's cynical laugh was necessarily right. But it proved that he heard God's promises. It proved that he heard how ridiculous they were. And that's my question. Like, have you laughed in a while? I was talking to a student just a few weeks ago, and we were, uh, I think, walking through a passage that he had never read before. And he was asking some great questions about the gospel. And we just talked about how, like, who Jesus is, is he takes all of your sin, all of it, so that even when you sin tomorrow, you're not condemned for it. And he gives you all of his righteousness so that you are righteous in his sight. And he just looked at me and he said, like, that's ridiculous. I actually love that he said that. He said, nobody would do that. Nobody. And he actually heard it right. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, look, nobody would die for a good man. He said, and he says, maybe somebody would die for a good man. Nobody would die for their enemies. But Jesus... And hear me, like if you're here investigating Christianity tonight or wondering if you believe in Jesus, ask yourself this. Have you laughed at the ridiculousness of it all? Because if you haven't, I'm telling you, you you haven't heard the good news. You haven't heard what he wants. But if you come week after week and you kind of look at your life and you think, you're telling me the Lord of this universe wants a real relationship with me, that he wants to delight in me and he loves me, he really knows who I am and he knows all my shame and he knows all, my, all the stuff that I hide and he still wants to be with me, that's ridiculous. And you say, you're telling me the Lord of this universe took on flesh and was crucified in my place so I could be his. That's crazy. I'm just like this guy who eats Doritos on a Monday and like looks at porn sometimes. Like That's nuts. Yes. I'm telling you, at least you've heard it. You have actually processed what the Bible says. Now that might be a laugh of disbelief. It might be cynicism. But you're actually close. You're hearing it. But the reverse is true too. That means this. If you're convinced that you're a good person. And you're convinced that honestly. I mean yeah I have a few, I have a few flaws. But it's not crazy that the God of this universe wants to be with me. Like it's not crazy Uh, That he wants to marry me. If salvation makes sense to you. I'm just telling you you've missed it. You've missed it. And I'm going to bet this. There are many Christians in this room tonight. That you just don't laugh anymore. Because Jesus' love for you. It just makes sense. And what that means is. I'm not saying you're a Christian. It just means you've forgotten. You've forgotten how messed up you and I really are. And you've forgotten how great of a Savior Jesus is. Right, we sing this all the time in in Can It Be. We sing this question, Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursue? Amazing love, how can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? God makes promises that should make you laugh. Have you laughed? The second of all... 
He gives a sign that confronts the laughter, right? After making these incredible, maybe you could say absurd covenant promises, the Lord instructs Abram to do something. (coughs) Actually, I'm going to call him Abraham now because he changes his name. He says, here's how you should keep my covenant. You need to have every male among you circumcised, and then everyone born after this circumcised on the eighth day. Why does God instruct that? Because he's gracious and good. Right? Maybe you're saying, uh, that doesn't sound very gracious and good. Uh, how can requiring a painful, bloody... Okay, look, I'm not going to talk down to you. I'm always going to tell you the truth. How can requiring a painful, bloody cutting of a male organ be gracious? Because what he's doing is giving a sign of his covenant. God knows that his promise seems too good to be true. He knows that Abraham struggles to believe that it's true. And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you a physical, irreversible mark on you that I've commanded. And it will always remind you that my promises are on you, Abraham. Always. And so think about marriage. Right? I, think, I think that's the easiest covenant to think about. Right? When I do a wedding, I say, are there tokens of the covenant? And then I get handed rings that, 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 the, that the spouse places on the other person's finger. What is the purpose of a, of a wedding ring? It's a sign. It marks me out as belonging to Liza. It marks me out as saying, Liza has made incredible promises to me. To love me and to be with me no matter what. And so the, this is a sign of the relationship that me and Liza have. And you know this, right? You'll see this in movies, or maybe you've actually seen this before. Why does somebody take off a wedding ring at a bar? You realize it means something. They're trying to escape something. It's pointing to something deeper than just, oh, I removed this ring. It means they don't want to be married. And see, God is so gracious. Yes, he could have just looked at Abraham for the third time and said, look, I've told you I'm going to be your God. I've told you I'm going to love you, and, and I'll leave it at that. And he would have been so gracious. But he doesn't. He says, Abraham, I know you struggle to believe. I'm going to give you something tangible. Something you can see. And it's going to be called circumcision. And maybe you're thinking like, like, why didn't he give wedding rings? That would have been a whole lot easier and nicer, right? Because the sign points to the promise. Think about how much clearer the grace would have been to Abraham. God promised to give him children beyond number, Right? And now Abraham has this tangible reminder in the place that you produce children. Think about that. And that mark is always with him. Always pointing him to the truth that God is so gracious to me. That he will not let me forget his promises. And so every time, I mean, I want to get you right, but every time Abraham saw himself naked, he knew that God loved him. He was reminded of the fact that Though I am singing by the God of this universe for all of my failure and all of my shame, God has made incredible promises to me. And, right, when he had sex with Sarah, he was believing the promise in a very visible way. Some ways he's probably saying, this seems ridiculous, but I'm going to trust that God makes good on his promises. So how does that relate to us tonight? Well, if Abram's the paradigm again, if he's the father of our faith and how God deals with Abraham, he deals with us. God graciously gives Abraham a sign of his covenant love 
Not because God ever wavers in his promises or his love, but because Abraham does. And it's called baptism. That's what God has given us. That's what was read to us uh, by Tyler. Blood doesn't need to be spilled anymore because Jesus' blood was spilled on our behalf. But in Colossians 2, this is, what, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, In Him also, talking about Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. By the circumcision of Christ, you have been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith. So look, when baptism was applied to you as a child, like circumcision, and by the way, that's why historically a large number of Christians baptize their children because it's replaced circumcision, okay? Or after you become a Christian in some denominations, what is that? It's a tangible sign, something you can see and feel that God is saying, He's so kind, He's saying, I know you're going to struggle with this. I know you're going to think it's too good to be true. I wash all your sins away. All of them. And I want you to feel that. I want you to experience that. You are clean and you are mine. And just as real as the water is washing over your skin, or maybe even more real, is the cleansing blood of Jesus that that cleans all your sin. There's another um, NPR episode called Radio Lab. This is actually from a friend of mine. There's a discussion about kind of random things that we hold on to. And one of the guys they interviewed, had, had held, he held on to this sh- uh, sugar-coated egg for 40 years. And, they, and you know, they're asking, what's the story behind this? And he said, well, for the first eight or nine years of my life, I think, his, I think his parents were in the military, or his dad was, he said, we moved at least once a year. And so he said, I just like, I never had friends. And he said, finally when I was nine... There's actually a boy that lived a few houses down from me, and we'd actually become friends. But it was time to move again, and we were going to move on my friend's birthday. And so on move day, I ran down to his house to his birthday party. And he handed me this sugar-coated egg because it was the the party favor. And he said goodbye, and he left with the egg. And he said, I treasure that egg because I actually have proof that I could touch that I really had a friend. And I've never forgotten that. I want you to think about this, Christian. Why does God give you baptism? The other sacrament is the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. Why does he give you those things? As a visible, tangible reminder that you have a true friend in Jesus. That you can touch. That he wants to be with you. So much so that his body was broken for you as this bread is broken. So much so that his... Blood was poured out for you as the wine is poured out. And it's real wine. I'm going to go ahead and say that. And as you take those things into you, as you swallow them, as you taste them, this is absurd, but this is His promise. He loves you so much, He wants you to be in Him and He in you. Right? It's a promise of marriage. And this is how gracious God is. Yes, He gives you His Word to be read and to heard, And to be heard every week, but also with regularity. If you're in the family of God, you're supposed to hold this bread in your hand and drink this wine and and essentially laugh again. And say, this is ridiculous. Like, this is incredible. I've forgotten God's love again. I don't trust it. I've sinned again this week. But His love for me hasn't changed. And it's real. Like, I can hold it. 
And he just knows that amidst our busyness and amidst our sin, we just forget. And so he gives us tangible things to hold on to. To say, my promises from you aren't moving. You can trust me. So that's the covenant that produces laughter. That's the sign that confronts our laughter. And lastly, what's the response? I really think there's three things, probably more, but at least three that this passage calls for us. First, if the Lord is coming to you tonight through His Word, what it's calling out to you is to actually believe His promises. We say this almost every week. But all the Lord's promises to Abraham, they are fulfilled in Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. Right, did you notice back in Genesis 17 that when God was telling Abraham about the sign, He said, if anybody does not bear the sign, they will be cut off. In other words, God says something has to get cut. Either, Abraham, you're going to be partially cut now, or you're going to be cut off eternally if you don't. And don't you see, Abraham, he just kept failing. So why does he not get cut off? Why do you and I not get cut off for our disobedience? Because Jesus was cut off for us. Jesus became a bloody sacrifice on a cross 2,000 years ago, and He was cut off from His Father's love so that you and I can be brought in. And that never changed. And so you've really got to see that. You've really got to trust that. But then, secondly, your response should be what God tells Abraham, to walk before Him blameless. I know that sounds scary, But let me explain what it means. Like the initial instructions to Abraham, it does not mean I'm asking you to be perfect, okay? But what he's saying is this. Walk before the Lord biblically means to realize that everything that you do is in my presence, Abraham. Everything. All of your life is lived before me. And I want it to be blameless. And that word blameless doesn't mean perfect, but it means whole, consistent. And so the Lord is saying this. Abram, here's the proper response to my unwavering love for you. Every part of your life always needs to be in reference to and out of love and trust of me. Period. And again, it's, it's just kind of like being married. I don't, I don't know another way to illustrate this. But when Liza and I got married, it's just true. We became one. We were declared one. God sees us as one. And you start realizing that everything you do affects your spouse the way I spend my money. The jokes they used to think were funny, they're actually hurtful, actually hurt lies, like everything. And you realize it would be absurd if I said, well, I've given Liza everything, but this part of my life, my sexuality, I'm not going to give to her. I'm going to give that to somebody else. You say, you can't do that. Like that's breaking the covenant. That's not what marriage is about. To be married means that all of your life is together with your spouse because every aspect of it affects the whole person. And that's what God's showing Abraham, and that's what he's showing us. That God is bringing this into clear focus, that life will not work. If you don't realize that all of your life, every aspect of it, is lived before the Lord who loves you and has made covenant promises to you. You are marked as His. And I hope that helps you understand some of the dysfunction in your life. Because what we tend to do is we tend to compartmentalize parts of our life and say... Well, I know God cares about this and I need to read my Bible and I need to go to church and I need to be nice to people. But we refuse to allow our relationship with God to dictate the way I think about sex, the way I think about school, uh, what we put into our bodies, and we just rationalize it. 
And we say, I, I don't think God cares about that area. Or we just pretend like it exists in some separate sphere. It doesn't. And responding to his covenant is to start seeing that. And we live wholly before Jesus with everything. And here's the good news, which means even with your sin. So you can live your whole life before God with your sin and shame. We're afraid blameless means being perfect and we're not. But living life consistently before God means that when you sin, you realize it's before God and so I can repent. Your sin always takes place before the face of the God who loves you and you don't have to hide it anymore. You can go to Him with sin all over your face. And He will love you and forgive you and keep coming after you. And so my final question would be kind of evoking a final response. Is would you consider laughing again tonight? That's the final response. I love this. Did you see what God commanded Abraham in verse 19? He says, you will call his name, your son, Isaac. You know what Isaac means? He laughs. This is awesome. God never wavered in his commitment to Abraham. He never wavered on his promises. And so God says, Abraham, name him. He laughs. Because what I'm going to do, Abraham, is I'm going to turn your cynical, unbelieving laughter into into a laughter of wonder and joy. That when it comes, you will begin to laugh and Sarah will laugh because my promises are unbelievable and they're better than you think. And that's the last reaction as a Christian. As if you laughed in wonder lately. Like Christianity really says God's family is made up of like forgiven sinners. Like we're all Cinderella who showed up at this ballroom and we're all the girl of Ash. And we're like, what are we doing here? This is crazy. This is hilarious. I'm at like the ballroom of the king, of the prince. And Cinderella the whole time is is saying like, I don't belong here. I hope he doesn't figure it out. But what she discovers, there's a prince who smiles and loves her and says that she belongs. That's the offer going out to you tonight. You can laugh at the ridiculousness that God loves you so much that He would send His Son to die for you so you could be His, the real you, the one that struggles to believe that. And on the other other end of that, you will find that there's somebody else that laughs, and it's the Lord of this universe. He laughs in delight that you are His. It just reminds me of that quote about Gandalf at the end of Lord of the Rings where it says... He laughs such a laughter that, oh, I thought I had it memorized. And when it fell upon Sam's ears, like at the echo of all joys that he had ever known. Christian, that's what you're destined for. And the new heavens, new earth, the Lord of this universe will laugh such a laugh of joy at you being his that it'll just never stop. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to laugh again tonight? Yes, this is a broken world. And even when your son walked it, he was a man of sorrows because he knew how things were supposed to be and things are really messed up. And so, Lord, we need to cry. We need to mourn over our sin. Lord, you have also given real hope that pervades our sadness and enables us to, to laugh, to laugh at the ridiculousness. 
that you have come and lived and died and made us yours and one day promised to heal everything so that we never stop laughing. So would you help us to feel that tonight? In your son's name I pray. Amen.